Chapter Seven of the Two Gun Man by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. The Measure of a Man. During the week following Ferguson's arrival at the Two Diamond Ranch, Stafford saw very little of him. Morning saw him proceed to the corral, catch up his pony, mount, and depart. He returned with the dusk. Several times from his office window, Stafford had seen him ride away in the moonlight. Ferguson did his own cooking, for the cook had accompanied the wagon outfit down the river. Stafford did not seek out the new man with instructions or advice. The work Ferguson was engaged in he must do alone, for, if complications should happen to arise, it was the manager's business to know nothing. The Two Diamond Ranch was not unlike many others that dotted the grass plains of the territory. The interminable miles that separated Stafford from the nearest did not prevent him from referring to that particular owner as neighbor, for distances were thus determined, and distances thus determined were nearly always inaccurate. The traveler inquiring for his destination was expected to discover it somewhere in the unknown distance. The Two Diamond Ranch had the inevitable reputation of being slick, which meant that Stafford was industrious and thrifty, and that his ranch bore an appearance of unusual neatness. For example, Stafford believed in the science of irrigation. A fence skirted his buildings, another ran around a large area of good grass, forming a pasture for his horses. His buildings were attractive, even though rough, for they revealed evidence of continued care. His ranch house boasted a sloped roof and paved galleries, a garden in the rear was but another instance of Stafford's industry. He had cattle that were given extraordinary care because they were milkers, for in his youth Stafford had lived on a farm, and he remembered days when his father had sent him out into the meadow to drive the cows home for the milking. There were many other things that Stafford had not forgotten, for chickens scratched promiscuously about the ranch yard occasionally trespassing into the sacred precincts of the garden and the flower beds. His horses were properly stabled during the cold, raw days that came inevitably. His men had little to complain of, and there was a general atmosphere of prosperity over the entire ranch. But of late there had been little contentment for the two-diamond manager. For six months, cattle thieves had been at work on his stock. The result of the spring roundup had been far from satisfactory. He knew of the existence of nesters in the vicinity. One of them, Radford, he had suspected upon evidence submitted by the range boss. Radford had been warned to vacate Bear Flat, but the warning had been disregarded. But one other course was left, and Stafford had adopted that. There had been no hesitancy on the manager's part. He must protect the two-diamond property. Sentiment had no place in the situation, whatever. Therefore, towards Ferguson's movements, Stafford adopted an air of studied indifference, not doubting from what he had seen of the man that he would eventually ride in and report that the work which he had been hired to do was finished. Toward the latter end of the week, the wagon outfit straggled in. They came in singly, in twos and threes, bronzed, hardy, seasoned young men, taciturn, serene-eyed, capable. They continued to come until there were twenty-seven of them. Later in the day came the wagon and the remuda. 
From a period of calm and inaction, the ranch now awoke to life and movement. The bunkhouse was scrubbed, swabbed in the vernacular of the cowboys. The scant bedding was cured in the white sunlight, and the cook was adjured to extend himself in the preparation of chuck, meaning food, to repay the men for the lack of good things during a fortnight on the open range with the wagon. At dusk on the first day in, Rope Jones, a tall, lithe young puncher, whose spare moments were passed in breaking the wild horses that occasionally found their way to the two diamond, was oiling his saddle leathers. Sitting on a bench outside the bunkhouse, he became aware of Stafford standing near. Leviat come in? queried the manager. The puncher grinned. Nope. Last I seen a Dave, he was hitting the breeze toward Bear Flat. Said he'd be in later. He lowered his voice significantly. Reckon that Radford girl is bothering Dave a heap. Stafford smiled coldly and was about to answer when he saw Ferguson dropping from his pony at the corral gate. Following Stafford's gaze, Rope also observed Ferguson. He looked up at Stafford. New man? he questioned. Stafford nodded. He had invented a plausible story for the presence of Ferguson. Sooner or later, the boys would have noticed the latter's absence from the outfit. Therefore, if he advanced his story now, there would be less conjecture later. "'You boys got enough to do,' he said, still watching Ferguson. "'I hired this man to look up strays. I reckon he can put in a heap of time at it.' Rope shot a swift glance upward at the manager's back. Then he grinned furtively. Two guns,' he observed quietly. "'With the bottoms of his holsters tied down.' I reckon your stray man ain't for to be monkeyed with. But Stafford had told his story, and knew that within a very little time, Rope would be telling it to the other men. So, without answering, he walked toward the ranch house. Before he reached it, he saw Leviatt unsaddling at the corral gate. When Ferguson, with his saddle on his shoulder, on his way to place it on the accustomed peg in the lean-to adjoining the bunkhouse, passed Rope, it was by the merest accident that one of the stirrups caught the cinch buckle of Rope's saddle. Not observing the tangle, Ferguson continued on his way. He halted when he felt the stirrup strap drag, turning half around to see what was wrong. He smiled broadly at Rope. "'You reckon them saddles are acquainted?' he said. Rope deftly untangled them. "'I ain't thinking they're relations,' he returned, grinning up at Ferguson." Leastways, I never knowed a double cinch and a center fire to get real chummy. I reckon you're right, returned Ferguson, his eyes gleaming cordially. And I've knowed men to lose their tempers discussing whether a center fire or a double cinch was the most satisfying. Some men is plumb fools, returned Rope, surveying Ferguson with narrow, pleased eyes. You didn't observe that the saddles rode any easier after the argument than before? I didn't observe, but maybe the men was more satisfied. Let a man argue that something he's got is better than something that another fellow's got, and he falls right in love with his own, and goes right on falling in love with it. Nothing can ever change his mind after an argument. I know a man who's been studying human nature, observed Rope, grinning. And not wasting his time arguing fool questions, added Ferguson. 
You sure ain't plum greenhorn, declared Rope admiringly. Thank you, smiled Ferguson. I wasn't looking to see whether you'd cut your eye teeth, either. Well, now, remarked Rope, rising and shouldering his saddle, you've almost convinced me that a double cinch ain't a bad saddle. Seems to make a man plum good-humored. When a man's hungry and right close to the place where he is going to feed, said Ferguson gravely, he hadn't ought to bother his head about nothing. You're sitting at my right hand at the table, remarked Rope, delighted with his new friend. Several of the men were already at the wash trough when Rope and Ferguson reached there. The method by which they performed their ablutions was not delicate, but it was thorough. And when the dust had been removed, their faces shone with a dusky health bloom that told of their hard, healthy method of living. Men of various ages were there, grizzled riders who saw the world through the introspective eyes of experience, young men with their enthusiasms, their impulses, middle-aged men who had seen much of life, enough to be able to face the future with unshaken complacence, but all bronzed, clear-eyed, self-reliant, unafraid. When Ferguson and Rope entered the bunkhouse, many of the men were already seated. Ferguson and Rope took places at one end of the long table and began eating. No niceties of the conventions were observed here. The men ate, each according to his whim, and were immune from criticism. Table etiquette was a thing that would have spoiled their joy of eating. Theirs was a primitive country, their occupation primitive, their manner of living no less so. They concerned themselves very little with the customs of a world of which they heard very little. Nor did they bolt their food silently, as has been recorded of them by men who know them little. If they did eat rapidly, it was because the ravening hunger of a healthy stomach demanded instant attention and they did not overeat. Epicurus would have marveled at the simplicity of their food. Conversation was mingled with every mouthful. At one end of the table sat an empty plate, with no man on the bench before it. This was the place reserved for Leviatt, the range boss. Next to this place on the right was seated a good-looking young puncher, whose age might have been estimated at twenty-three. Skinny, they called him, because of his exceeding slenderness. At the moment Ferguson settled into his seat, the young man was filling the room with rapid talk. This talk had been inconsequential, and concerned only with those small details about which we bothered during our leisure. But now his talk veered, and he was suddenly telling something that gave promise of consecutiveness and universal interest. Other voices died away as his arose. Leviatt ain't the only one, he was saying. She ain't made no exception with any of the outfit. To my knowin', there's been Lon Dexter, Soapy, Clem Miller, Lazy, Wrinkles, and myself, he admitted, reddening. Been notified that we was mavericks and needed our ears marked. And now comes Leviatt a fannin' right on to get his'n, and I reckon he'll get it. You ain't tellin' what she said when she give you yearn, said a voice. There was a laugh, through which the youth emerged smiling broadly. No, he said, I ain't tellin', but she told Soapy here that she was lookin' for local color. Wanted to know if he was it. 
since then Soapy's been using a right smart lot of soap trying to rub some color into his face. Color was in Soapy's face now. He sat directly opposite the slender youth, and his cheeks were crimson. I reckon if you keep to the truth, he began, but Skinny had passed on to the next. And there's Dexter. Lon's been awful quiet since she told him he had a picturesque name. Said it'd do for to put into a book, which she's going to write. But when it come to choosing a husband, she'd prefer to tie up to a commoner name. And so Lon didn't graze on that range no more. This country's going plumb to, sneered Dexter. But a laugh silenced him. And the youth continued. It might have been fixed up for Lazy, he went on. Only when she found out his name was Lazy, she wanted to know right off if he could support a wife, providing he got one. He said he reckoned he could, and she told him he could experiment on some other woman. And now Lazy'll have to look around quite a spell before he'll get another chance. I'd call that being in mighty poor luck. Lazy was giving his undivided attention to his plate. And she come right out and told Wrinkles he was too old, that when she was thinking of getting wedded to some old monolith, she'd send word to Egypt, where they keep em in stock. Beats me where she gets all them words. Told me she studied her dictionary, said a man who sat near Ferguson. The young man grinned. Well, I swear if I didn't come near to forgetting Clem Miller, he said. If you hadn't spoke up then, I reckon you wouldn't have been in on this deal. And so she told you she studied her dictionary. Now I call that news. Someone been telling me that she'd asked you the meaning of the word evaporate. And when you couldn't tell her, she told you to do it said that when you got home you might look up a dictionary and then you'd know what she meant and now leviatt's hanging around over there continued the youth he's claiming to be going to see ben radford but i reckon he's got the same kind of sickness as the rest of us and you ain't saying a word about what she said to you observed miller she must have treated you awful gentle seeing you won't tell well, returned the young man, I ain't laying it all out to you, but I'll tell you this much. She said she was going to make me one of the characters in that book she's writing. Well, now, said Miller, that's sure letting you down easy. Did she say what the character was going to be? I reckon she did. And now you're going to tell us, boys? And now I'm going to tell you, boys, returned Skinny. But I reckon there's a drove of them characters here. You'll find them with every outfit, and you'll know them chiefly by their bray and their long, hairy ears. The young man now smiled into his plate, while a chorus of laughter rose around him. In making himself appear as ridiculous a figure as the others, the young man had successfully extracted all the sting from his story, and gained the applause of even those at whom he had struck. But now a sound was heard outside, and Leviatt came into the room. He nodded shortly, and took his place at the end of the table. A certain reserve came into the atmosphere of the room. 
no further reference was made to the subject that had aroused laughter but several of the men snickered into their plates over the recollection of leviatt's connection with the incident as the meal continued leviatt's gaze wandered over the table resting finally upon ferguson the range boss's face darkened ferguson had seen leviatt enter several times during the course of the meal he felt leviatt looking at him once toward the end his glance met the range boss's fairly leviatt's eyes glittered evilly Ferguson's lips curled with a slight contempt. And yet these men had met but twice before. A man meets another in North America, in the Antipodes. He looks upon him, meets his eye, and instantly has won a friend or made an enemy. Perhaps this will always be true of men. Certainly it was true of Ferguson and the range boss. What force was at work in Leviatt when in Dry Bottom he had insulted Ferguson? Whatever the force, it had told him that the steady-eyed, deliberate gunman was henceforth to be an enemy. Enmity, hatred, evil intent shone out of his eyes as they met Ferguson's. Beyond the slight curl of the lips, the latter gave no indication of feeling, and after the exchange of glances, he resumed eating, apparently unaware of Leviatt's existence. Later, the men straggled from the bunkhouse, seeking the outdoors to smoke and talk. Upon the bench just outside the door, several of the men sat. Others stood at a little distance or lounged in the doorway. With rope, Ferguson had come out and was standing near the door, talking. The talk was light, turning to trivial incidents of the day's work, things that are the monotony of the cowboy life. Presently, Leviatt came out and joined the group. He stood near Ferguson mingling his voice with the others for a little time the talk flowed easily and much laughter rose then suddenly above the good-natured babble came a harsh word instantly the other voices ceased and the men of the group centered their glances upon the range boss for the harsh word had come from him he had been talking to a man named tucson and it was to the latter that he had now spoken there's a heap of rattlers in this country he had said. Evidently, the statement was irrelevant, for Tucson's glance at Leviatt's face was uncomprehending. But Leviatt did not wait for an answer. A man might easily claim to have been bit by one of them, he continued, his voice falling coldly. The men of the group sat in a tense silence, trying to penetrate this mystery that had suddenly silenced their talk. Steady eyes searched out each face in an endeavor to discover the man at whom the range boss was talking. They did not discover him. Ferguson stood near Leviatt, an arm's length distant, his hands on his hips. Perhaps his eyes were more alert than those of the other men, his lips in a straighter line. But apparently he knew no more of this mystery than any of the others. And now Leviatt's voice rose again, insolent carrying an unmistakable personal application. Stanford hires a stray man, he said, sneering. This man claims to have been bit by a rattler and lays up overnight in Ben Radford's cabin, making love to Mary Radford. Ferguson turned his head slightly, surveying the range boss with a cold, alert eye. A little while ago, he said evenly, I heard a man inside telling about some of the boys learning their lessons from a girl over on Bear Flat. 
I reckon, Leviatt, that you've been over there to learn yearn. And now you got to let these boys know. Just a rustle it was, a snake-like motion. And then Ferguson's gun was out, its cold muzzle pressed deep into the pit of Leviatt's stomach. And Ferguson's left hand was pinning Leviatt's right to his side, the range boss's hand still wrapped around the butt of his half-drawn weapon. Then came Ferguson's voice again, dry, filled with a quiet earnestness. I ain't gonna hurt you. You're still tenderfoot with a gun. I just want to show these boys that you're a false alarm. I reckon they know that now. Leviatt sneered. There was a movement behind Ferguson. Tucson's gun was halfway out of his holster. And then arose Rope's voice as his weapon came out and menaced Tucson. Three in this game would make it odd, Tucson, he said quietly. If there's going to be any shooting, let's have an even break, anyway. Tucson's hand fell away from his holster. He stepped back toward the door, away from the range boss and Ferguson. Leviatt's face had crimsoned. Maybe I was running a little bit wild, he began. That's coming down right handsome, said Ferguson. He sheathed his gun and deliberately turned his back on Leviatt. The latter stood silent for a moment, his face gradually paling. Then he turned to where Tucson had taken himself, and, with his friend, entered the bunkhouse. In an instant, the old talk arose, and the laughter, but many furtive glances swept Ferguson as he stood, talking quietly with Rowe. The following morning, Stafford came upon Rope while the latter was throwing the saddle on his pony down at the corral gate. "'I heard something about some trouble between Dave Leviatt and the new stray man,' said Stafford. "'I reckon it wasn't serious.' Rope turned a grave eye upon the manager. "'Shucks,' he returned. "'I reckon it wasn't nothing serious, only,' he continued with twitching lips, "'Dave was taking the stray man's measure.' Stafford smiled grimly. How did the stray man measure up? he inquired, a smile working at the corners of his mouth. I reckon he wasn't none shy. Rope grinned, admiration glinting in his eyes. He's sure man size, he returned, giving his attention to the saddle cinch. End of chapter seven.